Welcome to the Service Academy Sorority, a space where women that have graduated from the service academies can share their stories and build a sense of camaraderie and sisterhood. This episode features Jennifer Ruth Romper Green, a 2005 graduate from the U.S. Air Force Academy. In this episode, you'll learn why Jennifer Ruth considers herself a bit of a late bloomer in life, how she often felt like she struggled to find her way at the beginning of each new chapter on her journey, but how ultimately these twists and turns led her to find deeper meaning in both her training as a pilot and her experiences at the Academy. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Jennifer Ruth. Thank you so much, Victoria. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Of course. Uh, Can you tell everyone where you're from and uh, what school you went to and when you graduated? Yes, I was born in Long Beach, California and raised in Sacramento, California. I graduated from the United States Air Force Academy in 2005. Awesome. And to start, can you give everyone one to two lines about who you are today? Uh, Yeah, so currently militarily, I serve as a commander of the 122nd Communications Flight. And my civilian role is to serve as the director and founder of the Missionero Pipeline. I am uh, daughter to Paul and Vivian Green, and uh, I'm the baby of six. Wow, baby of six? Yes. Wow. Wow. I am sure that that has, I could do a whole podcast on that because I am sure that has, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's had an impact on you oh. and who you've become. And that's, that's crazy. Wow. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, all right. But for the purposes of this podcast, <laughs> let's, uh, let's go back to the beginning. Uh, when you sure. were deciding where to go to college, uh, what made you choose a service academy and what made you specifically choose the Air Force Academy? Uh, the summer before I entered high school, my sister was involved in our high school's junior ROTC program. And I saw her, I saw her wearing a uniform and I come from a family of military uh, members. My grandfather was a chief and uh, my father was a senior NCO. He retired as an E8 in communications. And so I'd seen the military, but my father retired when I was seven. And so um, I saw my sister wearing the uniform and I decided that was something I wanted to, to be involved in. And then my freshman year of high school, my junior ROTC instructor, he introduced me to the Air Force Academy. And so I decided that that's what I wanted to pursue from my freshman year. Uh, I had a little bit of a lull uh, my junior year of high school and decided, you know what, I really want the more traditional experience, so I'll apply for ROTC scholarships. So I decided to pursue that route. And uh, thankfully, leading up to my senior year, the Academy liaison officer at the time, he said, hey, I really think you should consider the Academy. And he was just consistently asking. And I just said, you know, I don't know. And uh, in my mind, after he just kept asking, I thought, if I apply, he said, if you apply, it'll give you something to say no to. And in my mind, I thought, "Hmm, if I apply, he'll stop asking me. So (laughs) I ended up (laughs) applying. And uh, as you know, the application is pretty arduous. And so eventually, with all of that, um, I guess, desire and filling out all the papers and meeting all the expectations and all of those things, um, I began to, to grow a great desire for the, for the place. And uh, so there were several magazines or catalogs 
that we had on the table um, as far as other colleges that I was considering looking at bookmarking and, you know, processing. And uh, I remember one day I told my pops, I said, Papa, I, I want to go to the Air Force Academy. And he said, okay. And then the next day, you know, those 10, 15 magazines or college catalogs were just thrown in the trash. And that was my pursuit. And so I knew I wanted to join, uh, join the military, travel the world, and use languages. And uh, so I figured that going to the Air Force Academy was the best way to fill all three of those desires. Wow. Wow. So what about the military specifically do you think it was that really drew you in? Because it sounds like, like you just said, I mean, you were clear that you wanted to be in the military pretty early on. I feel like it probably had to be seeing, you know, my dad in uniform. Um, and I was, I was really young, um, you know, and, and every morning he tells the story, like I would, I would get his, his shoes ready and laid out or um, just put them next to, next to the door um, and just kind of help lay out his uniform. Cause I liked that. And I think that was there from an early age. And then um Honestly, and this is probably one, we'll just, if we do a nerd count of the nerdiest things I say, we'll just start with this as one. Um, <laughs> but uh, my sister, I just, I wanted to, to hang out with her and I liked her, you know? And so she, I had asked her, you know, what she did when she was wearing the uniform. She's two years older than I was, than I am. And so um, I, I just saw her and I said, what do you guys do? And she's like, well, they teach us to drill. They teach us to do this. And so the summer before ninth grade, we were outside with one of my high school friends Elsie and uh, our grade school friends, we'd grown up together and she taught us like how to drill. So facing movements and marching and that kind of thing. And so nerd count number one, uh, she taught us that before high school. And I thought, wow, this is really cool. And, and I don't know if I had some thought that that's what we do all day in the military, um, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure I've only been in one formation since graduation. If oh, not. So yeah. That's so funny. I, I love hearing, I love hearing people's perception when they were applying, like what they thought the military was <laughs> versus what it is. Oh, that's great though. Wow. So it oh, sounds man. like you really looked up to your dad and your sister and you were around military. So, um, and obviously you had some idea of what the lifestyle was like, uh, at least from like a, you know, the uniform and all of that. So, okay. So was it always the Air Force Academy or did you look at the other ones? Honestly, I didn't. I feel like the Air Force, Air Force ROTC, um, Air Force, you know, grandfather and my dad, my, my other grandfather, my mom's dad was army and I didn't know him. Um, I didn't know my own, my, my father's father. So I think it was just my father's influence and then Air Force Junior ROTC. And so it was always Air Force. Well, that is actually helpful in some ways when you're going through that arduous application process with nominations and things like that. So um, sure, I'm, sure. I'm curious, though, you said you were interested in languages. What, what was that about? Uh, so my mom is a native Filipina and my her father uh, was in the army and met her mother in the Philippines. And so they got married and had uh, five children. And then when my mom was 19, she moved to the States, um, but she grew up born in, and raised in the Philippines. Um, and my father studied Russian um, and uh, just the strategic nature of it was kind of the purpose behind it. And then when we were younger, they knew they wanted us to study something strategically. 
And as a result, um, the only school that they could find that kind of fit that bill was Japanese school. So every Saturday from second grade to 10th grade for three hours, we would go to downtown Sacramento and go to Japanese school um, and study language, culture, uh, reading and writing. And that was my Saturday. Nerd wow. moment number two. <laughs> wow. Wow. So, so you were exposed to all these languages growing up then? Yes. So my dad didn't really speak Russian in the house, but we had a huge uh, Filipino influence and a lot of Tagalog. And my mom, um, if I recall correctly, she didn't care for us to teach, to teach us her language because she felt like uh, as far as a worldwide um, use for it, there were better languages if you were going to consider training on languages. So sure, it's good to communicate, but strategically, you know, what would be more beneficial and so they selected Japanese for us. That's crazy. All right. So, so you kind of were raised with this, this idea that language is really, um, and it, it sounds like it was really integrated into your life, that language is really mm. important. So military language all makes sense to me. Um, Air, Force, <laughs> Air Force Academy. Tell me about get, uh, the process of applying. Was, was that a struggle for you? Was it pretty straightforward? Did you go and visit the academy? So my... Sister went to college in Kansas, and when my father and I drove to drop her off, on the way back, we visited Yusafa. And I remember, for whatever reason, it was kind of difficult to get in um, physically. For whatever reason, you know, I just thought, ah, uh, well, we don't have to go through there. And my pops was like, no, 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 we're going to go. So we went there, and I remember going to the visitor center, and I just remember thinking, wow, this is nice. You know, I, this is nice. Yeah. So I thought it was really, it was really interesting to be able to be there. Um, and so uh, the application process, um, I was pretty, pretty physically fit. Um, and I didn't have the best, you know, the 4.5 GPA. I definitely took AP classes and that helped my GPA, but I wasn't the strongest. Um, and so I think the application process, not even processing that we wanted, they wanted to look for well-rounded um, applicants. I just had, I think, above average in multiple areas as opposed to being really, really good academically or really, really good athletically. Um, I would say probably an 80% is what I would score in all of the averages across, whereas some people might be 90 in academics and, you know, 70 in sports or something. I think I was above average in everyone, but I wasn't an outstanding performer. And so I feel like in the application process, I had a lot of community service. Um, I was team captain for, for basketball and soccer. I also played tennis. And so SAT scores were above average, but nothing that you know anybody would get excited about. Uh, and so I feel like the, the process for service academies, as you know, is just arduous and it's just very involved. Okay, so did you get in on your first shot or how did that go for you? Well, I got accepted to the Air Force Academy prep school and that was in uh, Colorado Springs, still on the same campus. And yes, uh, I did get into the prep school and that was an, an extra 10 months of a focus on English, science and math. It just, uh, it was an interesting time and incredibly helpful and prepped me incredibly well for the academy, uh, just kind of as a, an, an interim phase for me to be able to integrate well when I got to the hill, as we call it, we call the, the academy proper the hill. So this is interesting to me because you're the first person on the show who 
has gone to the Air Force Prep School. I actually don't know much about that. Mm. I've heard a lot about NAPS, the Naval Academy Prep School. Sure. Um, so that's interesting. So the Air Force Prep School is on campus. Yes, it is. It is actually, it's on the same Air Force base. However, it's, uh, it's set off by itself and it's merely five or six buildings, three dorms, an academic building and an administrative building. And so you have a, a squadron commander who is a, over about 100 cadet candidates and, uh, and that, that uh, commander is an, uh, a major. And then you have a lot of senior NCOs who will do a lot of the training. So the purpose of our prep school, as I understand it, um, is, is somewhat of a stepping stone, if you will. So a lot of people were, were uh, deficient is, sounds worse than I mean it, but uh, just needing a little bit of extra attention in a certain area. So I know um, there, are, there are a lot of enlisted members that are transitioning back into school. So it's kind of a solid stepping stone for them. Uh, and then some people, you know, if they're at athletes and they just need a little bit more of a, an emphasis on those items and they'll kind of press them to that as well. And sometimes for congressional nominations, it's kind of a, a little bit of a holding pattern as well. So you can go through the prep school and if there is a, a congressional member who potentially ends up with an extra appointment that they're not going to use, they can kind of give up that slot. And although you don't live in their district, um, they can pull that slot, at, at least they could at the time, and give that to a member of the prep school so that you could have a full appointment into the academy. Wow. So, so how did you feel getting into the prep school? Were you okay with that? Were you, how did you feel? Initially, I, I talked to my junior ROTC instructor and uh, he said, he's like, hey, you know, don't waste your time on that. Just go straight into uh, another college take, and, and take your commission, earn your commission and, and get started a year early. And I thought, I, I thought, you know, maybe it was kind of a second place finish, but in reality, it was the best thing that could have happened to me. Um, and so I'm really glad that I was able to go. I don't know that I necessarily felt bad as in, oh, I missed the mark, but more a matter of like, okay, got to start just, you just got to start pressing and then you still have to earn your appointment. Uh, there's a, like a 97% acceptance rate, um, but um, there's still the chance that you might not get in. And, you know, I didn't know the parameters for what that would mean. You know, what could you do that wouldn't cause you to get in? Um, but, uh, so it was still chancing it, if you will, but, um, all in all, I felt it was amazing. You gain friends, you, you understand the military structure, you understand a little bit of the expectation. Um, and so when you get to basic the first day, um, you're used to generally, you know, standing on the footprints and knowing what they're going to throw at you. Every single person I've interviewed who goes to the prep school, whether it be for the Naval Academy, the Merchant Marine Academy, whatever it is they're always like so grateful they did it. They always are so happy they did it in <laughs> retrospect. Yeah. Yes. I mean, yeah. So that's cool. Thank you for sharing about the Air Force Academy because I really didn't know that much about sure. that prep school. Um, sure. Tell me how that first summer went. Tell me how that first year, well, let's talk about the summer first. Tell me how that first summer went. Sure. So coming in as a preppy, uh, I, as we call, you know, prep school graduates, coming in as a preppy, I, I kind of understood the yelling game. I understood, you know, the intimidation game or the break you down game or the teamwork game. Um, but I didn't understand my biases. 
uh, biases isn't the right word. My, my weaknesses. Um, I wasn't a know-it-all, but I kind of had my own agenda is not the right way, but word, but my, my own way of understanding things. And so, um, and I, and I'll talk a little bit about this, but at full transparency, when I was in high school, I had the, you know, big fish in a little pond opportunity. So I kind of was able to pick and choose what I wanted to do, or I know that I could do this assignment if I wanted to, or turn it in late or something and still get a good grade. And, and that, that doesn't speak well of, of the education I had. And I, that's not what I'm intending to say. Um, I had a great school with great instructors. I just had this mindset, like maybe if I turned everything in on time and maybe if I was hundred percent attentive, or maybe if I wasn't always relying on the good graces of teachers who would be like, Oh, you're going to go to college. It's fine. Like just turn it in later. I know, I know you'll do it. Or I know it's going to be a good paper. You know what I mean? Like I was yeah. afforded those extra opportunities. So I kind of became a little bit, whether it was selfish or lazy and, uh, as such, coming in during basic, I had a really good, you know, really good teammates. Um, but I wasn't used to like pushing myself beyond uh, to grow myself. I just was like, I can do the minimum. I can do exactly what's expected of me. And if I respect you, I'll do more. But if not, I'll just do exactly what you asked me to. And definitely not the attitude of an officer, um, but that was my attitude. And so, that that attitude had to get worked out of me. So um, in basic and then coming into the squadron, uh, my cadet squadron, I I would say I was just, whether it was average, I could do all the things physically. Um, and because I had this mindset that I can choose to do what I want, um, that brought negative attention. Um, and it, and, and it mm. wasn't that I would not do what the cadre would ask, you know, I would, if I, if our team was doing 10 pushups, I could do 10 pushups. Um, and I wasn't the one that would kind of stay down and, and, and want to do more. Or, I don't know how to quite explain it, but I ran into some academic trouble because I actually started having that sentiment of, I could just do the minimum or do whatever, whatever I feel like I need to do to meet the expectation. That's what it was. I would do what I wanted to meet the expectation. Um, mm -hmm. And so in, academically, like that's not the way it works at all. Very different from what I described. And so I got put on academic probation and then I had a general, the, the, it was a general mentality that, uh, that I would describe, that I just described, that kind of led the cadre to, to put me on what we call conduct aptitude probation. So for six months, um, that's where you have to, uh, typically it might follow some, some, event where you know your officership is in question and you know if somebody gets a DUI or somebody you know goes AWOL or over the fence we call it uh or 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 something of that nature and they feel that they need to restrict you to campus and they need you to figure out and do a lot of self-exploration that's what that tool was for but I was put on the same probation and it was for a general like demeanor of not understanding the officership mentality. And uh, yeah, and, and looking back, 100% agree. I often tell people now, you know, officership is more caught than taught. And, um, you know, like the famous definition, you know, from days of old, like, I, I, I don't know how to define it, but I know it when I see it. And so officership mm -hmm. is one of those things that you have to embody 
but yet it's so nebulous. Um, and so you can have all of these inputs and then eventually um, as those inputs come together in the right way, then now you're the officer that the, the academy can be proud of. And so um, it took a while for me to grasp that. And um, after coming from out of that academic uh, probation and off of conduct probation, my four degree year, um, I felt like, you know, I understood things a little bit. And that sentiment had kind of grown out of me. And I've realized some of those bad habits where they came from and was able to kind of, you know, fix those. Mm. So I'm grateful for that. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So did that cause you problems during that first summer then? Like you, you alluded to that, that you had some issues with the way the cadre perceived you during that first summer. Is that what you're, is that what you're talking about? Just like kind of your attitude in general? I think so. And, and it wasn't even, and I think the hard part was that they couldn't pin anything on me. I'll just say this as an example. Um, if I, if we were doing a PT run and it was a mile and a half PT test and the time was, you know, 12 minutes that we needed to finish in, then I, I could do 1159 and be okay. But I would like sprint mm. the entire last quarter of a mile. Gotcha. And it was just like, I, I would strategically kind of plan <laughs> to make things like the way that I wanted to work it. And it was like, why would you not try for 10 minutes if you could do 10 minutes? And it yeah. was like, because you said 12 minutes, you know, and, and yeah. we didn't actually have those conversations, but that's just kind of the sentiment. So there was nothing they could really, there was nothing disastrous that they could say, Hey, definitively you, you are, or are not doing abiding by our rules. It was the sentiment. And I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. That's a, that's a beautiful analogy, by the way. I think it, it, it explains the point perfectly, kind of like where you were mm -hmm. at mentally at that time. And then it also sure. illuminates why that mentorship and kind of that nudge to be an officer and what that means and embody it more, um, why that kind of helped you evolve beyond that. So good example. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So you enter the academic year. It, it, tell me a little bit more about, about that for you. Tell me a little bit more how the academics went. Um, what was your major? What was the plan while you were there? We, ha we have classes all the way through, uh, core classes all the way through, just like I'm sure every service academy. And so um, four degree year, you're taking mainly majors classes. And really the first GPA weighs into your GPA 100%. So I had a really low GPA. And <laughs> as a result, being on academic probation, um, that kind of held me back. And, and uh, afterwards, it was like a, a long, you know, road up an uphill climb. Um, but taking those core classes, I was just, you know, average, and I worked hard. Um, but I think I didn't really understand my learning style until later in life. Um, but at the time, I was just committed to memorizing facts, uh, just like we did, you know, during basic. And so I would just remember exactly what I needed for the test, but I wasn't adept at applying. And that was exactly what the academy wanted us to be able to do was apply in all of these areas. And so um, I just, I kind of did the motions and got the grades reflective of the motions that I did. So um, my major was foreign area studies, which is a combined major of history, geography, economics, and political science. And so we can take our capstone project for our first year in any of those categories. And so 
uh, we get to take the gamut of courses uh, focusing on our region. So I studied Asia, which meant that we studied China, Japan, and Korea at the time. And so we studied uh, all of those and then minored in, in the language. And at the time, it was either Japanese or Chinese. And so Asian area studies with a Japanese minor. And we just had an incredible group of students that I got the opportunity to train with. Um, and it just, it, it was just a, an amazing, like a piece of study, I think, for my brain because I was fascinated by it. Um, yeah. And I, I knew since my sophomore year that I wanted to become an ambassador. So I felt like this was step one of leaning towards that end. Really cool. It's so interesting to me because King's Point's so different in its major structure and um, even just the, the types of majors that are available, like the fact that you could study Japanese and that, that's just crazy to me. That's really cool though. Um, <laughs> Okay. And you had a foundation in Japanese, so that must have been helpful at least a little bit, even though I know you mentioned that you struggled with some of the academics, but um, yeah. Yes, I was able to, to test it out of the first year and uh, test into classes with the class of 2004. Um, so as a freshman, it's, it's a little bit funny because, you know, they're, they're your primary trainers militarily. So um you know, coming in and being able to converse in a language where they're kind of starting off and they've earned their stripes, if you will, to be in that class and they've studied hard the year prior. And then to have a freshman or four degree walk in who, you know, like you just saw sweating and, you know, dying in the hallway because you're forcing them, not forcing, but you guys are collectively doing push-ups together. It's like, then you kind of turn that off and you're group partnering together. So it's kind of a unique experience in that way a little bit, but um, yes, the Japanese background did help me to kind of advance through and clutch some classes. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So, all right. So tell me about some of your highlights at the Academy, some of the most memorable mm. highlights. I got the opportunity to be an exchange cadet in Thailand uh, just for a week of spring break. And that was incredible. Um, Thai food is incredibly good. And I didn't realize how much I enjoyed native Thai until when we were in the middle of our trip, one of our hosts legitimately asked our interpreter to ask me if I had a tapeworm because huh. I, I just I had such a high metabolism and I would just eat anything and everything that they put out there. And it was amazing. Uh, so yeah, that was great. Great food, great fellowship, still in touch with some of uh, my Thai friends today uh, at the Royal Thai Air Force Academy. And I did get the chance for two separate summers to go down to San Antonio, which is where Air Force basic training is. And the first summer, I was able to push a flight through basic training. Um, and so all the way from zero week, when they arrive on a Wednesday night or a Tuesday night, and uh, everybody's there, and you take them from being a civilian to giving them, you know, PT gear or physical fitness gear, and uh, teach them how to march, teach them Air Force knowledge, teach them you know, how to wear blues all the way to graduation and, you know, being a part of that graduation parade. Uh, and then the following year, I got to be the cadet in charge and bring down 30-something cadets to Lackland as they were able, as rising two degrees or rising juniors to, to kind of complete the program. So those were incredibly memorable moments for me. I just really appreciated the opportunity to see both sides of how the Air Force operates. And then also, um, meeting the friends that you now know were a part of once in a lifetime experiences. When you're there, 
everybody does the exact same thing. Everybody had four degree year experience. Everybody had, you know, experiences where you're just drenched in sweat and shouting knowledge and doing push ups till your arms can't work anymore. And that was life. But when you, the minute you step out of that into off campus and into the real world, if you will, you are one of however many, and it's not that many. So that shared commonality and that shared bond um, is so deep and impenetrable that the friends I've had from then, although we have veered in our career paths and veered in our perhaps sentiment, political views, religious views, um, at the end of the day, that is something you can never take away. And so that closeness is probably one of the highlights of the Academy for me. Oh, that's awesome to hear. Did you feel that closest while you were there though? Or was that, like you just said, is that something that evolved after you graduated? I think I felt it while I was there, but it's something that I realized uh, the value of afterwards. Gotcha. Yeah. So you felt like you had good friends while you were at school. Absolutely. That's cool. Absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome. You know, we, we as women are part of the largest fraternity, you know, that there is. And being in the military and then more concentratedly service academy graduates. And so I just want to say, I really appreciate the fact that you've kind of gotten us together. And I, I, I look forward to the service academy sorority because to have that con- connectivity as women who have been a part of a fraternity for so long, um, we, we are our own. We are, we are our own uh, group of women in this special circumstance who are all connected. And, and I really appreciate the work you're doing and look forward to kind of how this continues to grow and how I can support it because this effort is so essential for so many of us. Oh, thank you for that, Jennifer Ruth. I appreciate it. I do. Right. And it's true. Like we're a part of a fraternity, but you're right. Like really, we need a sorority. So there we go. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I love that. And I appreciate you saying that. Um, but okay, so so now let's dive a little bit into some of the lowlights at the Academy. I would say one of the lowlights is the fact that the reality that uh, your reputation precedes you and people's perception is reality. So after our four degree year, we transfer to another squadron. So I transferred from Deuce, the second squadron, to 11, Rev 11, which is the 11th squadron. And so when I was in Deuce, um, I was on conduct aptitude probation. I was on academic probation. And then, um, and honestly, the thought was, you should know better because you're a preppy. So you should know how academics works. You should know how the military works. But yet, you're just not displaying what we need from you. So transitioning to 11, everyone kind of asks, you know, what, what kind of freshman are we getting or who's coming from your squadron? And so perhaps your reputation precedes you, but you have the opportunity to kind of make a name, I guess, for yourself again. So it was a low light, a, a low time for me to, you know, have that, that uh, reputation. And now, you know, I'd gone through probation and I'd, I've come out of it and I've understood things a little bit better. Now I'm going to a new place, but yet, you know, people kind of know you and know where you came from and know that you're on probation kind of thing. You weren't the rock star performer in any area. Um, except for athletics. I always did well athletically for my fitness tests and and grades in that area. But so I, they had this kind of call first semester or second semester of my three degree year. And they said, Hey, we want to nominate a three degree of the semester of the month. And so they wanted to take a picture of that three degree, whoever they picked and 
whoever that three degree, two degree, first day, you know, four degree of the month would be, they would put their picture up at the entrance to the group, uh, second group, because there, there were 36 squadrons at the time. So one through nine were first group and um, squadrons 10 through 17 were second group. So I was in second group and I got selected to be the three degree of the month. So whoever started that program didn't keep up with that program. So they put my picture up and for like all the way into the first semester of my two degree year, right? So we're talking like nine, 10 months, that picture just stayed up there and I never said a thing about it. And so mm. everybody coming in the, <laughs> into the group um, saw my picture and whoever saw my picture thought, oh, wow, maybe, you know, she's, she's hard charger. She's, she's been selected or maybe she's been selected for the last nine months. I don't know what people thought, but uh, it kind of erased that low time because um, I think the perception, I was able to kind of come out from under that a little bit because of that little, you know, that, that uh, slip up by whoever was kind of running the program. So that was definitely a low time for me that I was able to kind of re redemption or redeem myself you know, to be able to come out of. Um, were you conscious of that at the time though? Were you like thinking like this back then? Like, oh my gosh, like this is my opportunity to like make a new, a new reputation for myself. Were you thinking like that? I, I can tell you that I thought, I'm not going to tell anybody they should take that down. <laughs> yeah, I can tell you that's, that's what I thought. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, were there any other lowlights you wanted to share? Yeah, I think the highs and lows of, of dating are a very real thing. And so I dated um, long term for the last two years um, at the academy, and he was a great guy. But we had those emotional ups and downs, which because you're kind of in this pressure cooker and everything relates to everything else, you know, your social life is going to go into your your academic life, which goes into your athletic life. And, you know, everything just kind of bleeds into everything because you're so contained. Um, I would say that some, you know, when I had difficulties in that relationship, my dating relationship, then um, it kind of bled over a little bit into other areas. And so that was hard because then it was easy, I think, to feel like in this unique place, like, oh, I'm just struggling with everything. When in reality, yeah. you're just not, I wasn't mature enough to compartmentalize at the time and realize this is one thing and it's okay. And I can feel this way, but then I can go somewhere else and make whatever needs to happen, happen. So I think that was part of growth, but I think those low times really kind of made the whole process seem low. Um, and, and, it, and at the time it's, it's nothing to look back on and even think, you know, nothing tragic, but it could just be whether it was a, a, a disagreement or something, you know what I mean? Just at the, when you're that age, you know, 18 to 22, 23, everything just seems that much more significant. So um, that is one aspect of the academy. Um, I worked at the Merchant Marine Academy after I graduated from there for a while. That's a whole nother story. But like, um, I interacted <laughs> with a lot of parents. And I obviously I counseled a lot of students. And um, I, I think it's really not appreciated how when you're in that environment, um, a breakup, homesickness, uh, one night of bad sleep, one bad sickness where you're out for a week, uh, these sure. things are really significant because there's not much give in your, like, in your bandwidth. Mm. Like you don't have much bandwidth. So when something's slightly off to your point, 
there tends to be this kind of like trickle where it bleeds into everything else because like, you know, one bad night of sleep and now like, you know, you fail one exam and now there's like, there's just sure. not a lot of give, you know, if you're emotional about sure. a relationship. And so I get it. I get it for sure. That can be really hard. Wow. Can be really hard. Yeah. That's really powerful. I feel like I should, I should pay you for that. Like sit on a couch and pay you. Like that's deep. <laughs> that's, that's really good. That's what I do for a living girl. So. <laughs> it is, but you know, but, um, but anyway, yeah. So, um, but yeah, so I definitely can appreciate that, how, how that could sure. be a low light, you know? Um, all right. So let's talk about as you're trying to approach graduate, as you're approaching graduation, um, mm-hmm. what was the plan? So when I was a two degree, um, there's a Tuskegee Airman who named Lieutenant Colonel Lee Archer. He was uh, arguably the first black ace of the military to, you know, to shoot down five enemy aircraft in World War II. We were having a Tuskegee Airman celebration and we were just getting ready to put in our job request or dream sheet, if you will. And so, um, I knew that I wanted to do something with languages and I knew that I wanted to travel and I knew that I wanted to join the Air Force and that was still the same. And so I thought in order to become an ambassador, then I should probably do something with intelligence um, and then kind of work my way that way. That was kind of the goal. And so we had just done our pilot physicals, um, mandatory requirement, and they'll tell you if you're pilot qualified or not. And then they give you the opportunity to choose your AFSCs or Air Force Specialty Codes. He asked if I was pilot qualified and I said, yes, sir. And then he asked, you know, um, have you considered flying? And I said, no, sir. And he said, what do you want to do? And I said, I was planning on something with intelligence. And then he says, if you don't stand on our shoulders, who will? And it just was such a convicting thought. Wow. Because they were only, you know, 80 years removed from slavery here they were, you know, combating for the opportunity to fight for our country. And when people didn't believe that African-Americans had the capacity to fly a plane, let alone uh, defend the country, let alone um, not, you know, have weapons and be next to, um, you know, Caucasian members or non-African-American members and use them against the enemy solely, um, that was perhaps something that was very difficult for some people to arm African-Americans, you know, and so here they were, they had fought for the opportunity to prove the, the mental acuity. And I had the opportunity potentially to be trained by the Air Force to fly. And I wasn't interested. But then when he said that, it just stuck with me. I have the opportunity and I have the responsibility. And why not? So that's, that's kind of what led me to aviation. I, I put my dream sheet as aviation. And since I was, you know, pilot qualified and and had met the you know requirements to to earn a slot. I was given a slot, and uh, that was kind of the plan after graduation. Um, initially, it was intelligence, but it was uh, derailed in a good way by Lieutenant Colonel Lee Archer. Wow, that is powerful, so powerful. And now I'm like so curious to hear how your career unfolded, and you know what you've done with that desire that you had for years, like you had that desire for the, to be an ambassador and the languages and 
Um, I'm curious. Sure. Oh, I'm just so curious to hear how this unfolds. All right, let's keep going. So, <laughs> so that sounds like a super powerful interaction. Obviously, it had a huge it impact was. on you. Um, life altering. Life altering, totally. Um, mm. So, so you graduate, and what happens? I, I graduate, and I go to my first base, uh, which is Columbus Air Force Base, and that's in Mississippi, and. Late bloomer may be the best way to describe it, but um, kind of that sentiment where you just look like you're down and out, like you don't have the best grades, and then you kind of get pulled out of that rut, and perhaps you have a, a, a solid reputation, and then your reputation continues to build, and you graduate and have good classmates, good interactions, you get, you know, the dream job, you get to start pilot training incredibly early, you don't have to wait a year, you know, like some people do, um, and I feel like every assignment or every opportunity I've stumbled and then bloomed later on in life and then um, been able to, to come out and, and fortunately do great things. Yeah, so I get to pilot training and the pattern that is life, just like four degree year, um, I stumble. And nothing morally, nothing, character, characteris, uh, nothing based on my character, but really it was a learning style for me. I memorized everything and I would do exactly as I was told. Um, and I didn't really conceptualize airmanship, which is essentially that, again, that nebulous, um, hard to grasp and define um, element of aviation. So you can know how to control an airplane, but are you going to make the right decision when the time comes? And the time, quote unquote, could be when to drop your gear, when to turn base, when to turn final, like when to use major major checkpoints in order to to land and keep the same landing picture every time. So I like to describe it um, as if you give me a target to fly over and you say, hey, at, the, at this church, I always want you to turn left. I always want you to drop your power to this power setting. And then I want you to wait until your speed slows down, drop your gear, and then you descend at 500 feet per minute. I will always do that. However, if I go to another, at the time, when I would trans go to another location, and there was no church, I didn't conceptually understand that you were looking for three quarters of a mile off my left shoulder, 45 degrees. That's what I didn't conceptualize. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. I understood exactly what you wanted me to do. And so I would fly very mechanically, and I didn't have that airmanship. And so um, I was 50, 50 weeks, you know, through the program, or I guess six weeks out from winging. Um, I had, after I had taken a long time to pass through qualifications at uh, the first base in Columbus, I then began to fly with the Navy in Corpus Christi, Texas. And while I was there, um, airmanship was still a struggle, but I was just powering along and I would just go back and wake up every day. And it was, it was hard because I just kept learning new skills, but it was, nothing was clicking as quickly as it was for those who had grasped the concepts earlier. You know what I mean? I just, if you didn't tell me, I didn't know what to do. And that's, undoubtedly dangerous. <laughs> mm. So uh, the cadre just said, no, I, I can't ever picture you becoming an aircraft commander. Meaning like I couldn't picture you sitting in the left seat, being in charge of a crew, being in charge of people's lives, you know, completing the mission in that way. And, um, and they, after I had failed a, a major check ride and, and a subsequent check rides, you know, the re-evals, um, I think I just felt, I didn't fight, I didn't whatever, I just said, okay, 
because it just took so much energy to get up every day and to just perform barely minimally. And you get done, you get the mission done. And then the next day it's a huge, you know, energy drainer. It wasn't easy at the time, you know, I could control the aircraft, but I still wasn't meeting the standard. Um, and so they gave me more than enough chances. They were incredibly gracious to help me, to train me, but airmanship is what I was lacking at the time. And so the Air Force just said, hey, like we, we, if we can progress you and we can give you more time to train, but then you're going to your major weapon system, the C-130. And then at that point, like you don't have training hours left and we don't know what's missing, but something is missing. And so um, at that point, um, I just, uh, I just said, okay. And there were, there was an opportunity to kind of transition into OSI, Office of Special Investigations. And they were picking up five officers that year across the Air Force in my year group. So out of commissioning, they only had about five slots for my year group. And I think they probably only picked up maybe 10 officers, 10, 15 officers across the Air Force that whole, the, the whole year, you know, during our graduation year. Yeah. So it's a, a pretty small community and uh, it's the equivalent of NCIS or CID in the, in the army. So I got, I said that that's what I wanted to do. And uh, typically no one gets to retrain into that because five across the whole air force, right? Well, my commander um, in the flying squadron gave me a solid recommendation. And then I think the background in languages and um, the East Asian training, you know, was applicable and very helpful. And uh, ultimately, you know, after interviews, I was able to be selected as a special agent. And uh, that was the start of something new. And I felt like being an agent was probably all encompassing more for what I could bring to the Air Force. Um, I like to look back and think about it, that there are two very distinct things when discussing aviation in the military, or at least the Air Force for me. There's flying for the Air Force and there's being an Air Force pilot. And being an Air Force pilot is the flight suit and it's the the lore of being in the operations group and being, you know, the war fighter, that kind of thing. And flying for the Air Force is the reality of the schedule and, and deployments and um, being a master at your aircraft and those kinds of things. And if you can only love one, you better love flying for the Air Force because if all you're looking for is the, the, the fame and the flight suit, um, then it's surely going to be very disenchanting quickly. And so I don't know that I loved you know, flying for the Air Force, but I did like being an Air Force pilot. Um, and then when it came time to become a special agent, I loved being a special agent for the Air Force. And I loved, you know, being a special agent. I just mm. loved the opportunity to, you know, kind of delve in and the mental chess and the investigations and counterintelligence. And, and I felt like that was, that was an incredible opportunity to kind of exercise the whole person that is Jennifer Ruth Green. So just really valued kind of that transition and kind of found a fit for me mentally and physically as far as my contributions to the team. Mm, it sounds like it, yeah, it really spoke to your strengths and everything you were kind of, you were, you know, you were building towards whether you knew it or not. Yeah. Yes. yes. Yeah. It's interesting, but like, I'm just listening to your whole story. And to me, it just, you do have this, you have a pattern of, um, I like to think of it as just evolving because you're very self-reflective and you definitely take the time to process, you know, what each situation means and you grow. And I think that's like, you know, you've had a lot of opportunities where you could have just thrown in the towel and let the situation define you or limit you or stop you. And um, you just keep going. 
and you figure it out and you evolve. <laughs> and I love it. I think that's great. You know, I, cause you Thanks. obviously have gotten yourself onto a track that works for you now. So I definitely want to hear more about this. So the special agent piece, how long were you there? And then what did that lead to? So I was a special agent. Um, I, I earned my badge in 2008. I was stationed at LA Air Force Base and I was running investigations out of there. And we, I deployed in Baghdad, into Baghdad in 2009 for six months. And uh, the training prior, um, it led, us, led me to be gone for about six months, you know, during lead up time for all the training and the courses. And then uh, when we got downrange or prior to getting downrange, our focus at the time was, was establishing, like connecting with and vetting spies. And so whether we went out and did that in our, you know, specifics as we were out in the field, um, it depended on our mission set, but that was what our pre-deployment training was for. And so downrange, um, I had a really great partner that I was able to connect with. Um, and we worked kind of in a, in a building um, that was kind of secure with, we call it alphabet soup. So in the intelligence section, it was the DEA, the FBI, CID was there, NCIS, we were OSI. We had, you know, civilian contractors that were doing intel. We were just able to do some incredible things downrange, meet some incredible people. I got to help with the first class of female police graduates. Um, I got to help work on um, the NIIA, which is the FBI equivalent, National Investigation and Intelligence Agency uh, for Iraq, and develop their curriculum for training agents. And um, just some really unique things that I would never have the opportunity to do had I not, you know, been in that role at that time. And so um, several life-changing moments downrange. Um, I, met, I met a man who was, and I'll keep the story short, but essentially he was working alongside us and uh, he used his badge you know, as a, his, his cover for having a badge was that he was an English instructor and he was working with Americans, working as an Iraqi, just as an interpreter sometimes for things that, you know, Americans may need, but big picture, he was not engaged with providing us, you know, any sort of contact or information. And so in the process, you know, his daughter had been kidnapped because they thought that he was a traitor and um, we were able to get her back through the course of a raid. This is prior to me arriving. Um, but when I was there, we were working with him. So we sent our teams out, you know, in the dead of night to come and pick him, get him, pick him up. And so he came to our compound and, and uh, I was just talking to him and I said, you risk your family, you risk your life, you risk everything. You know, why, why do you do it? And uh, he said, because I believe in a better Iraq and I believe that Americans can help us do that. And I just thought, Wow. I was so humbled by his, mm. his self-sacrificial willingness to improve upon what he knew could be better. And everything up to and including his life. Um, and I just, he was an advisor. Like he wasn't necessarily providing weapons caches and details of that nature. He was an advisor to kind of help us understand how to navigate you know, what was a foreign or what, you know, perhaps still is a, a foreign culture to us and, and a foreign system. And so I just was humbled by his answer. 
and um, in processing, you know, why was I there? Um, because I volunteered, you know, what was it? And uh, George Orwell has this quote and he says, uh, it's attributed to him, rightly or wrongly, but it says, men sleep peaceable, peaceably in their beds at night because rough men stand ready to do violence on their behalf. And mm. I thought, wow, you know, the reason I am here and the reason I'm downrange is because I had friends who stood in the gap because the president and Congress declared war and said, we will go. The United States military will go. And as such, they slept away from their families and they did their jobs and they were effective and I slept peaceably in my bed. And now it's time for them to come back and it's my turn to go. And so I remember oftentimes coming back from the desert and people would say, thank you for going. Thank you for your service. And um, I would just say, it's a pleasure to serve or thank you for your kindness. And in reality, you know, kind of the thought is the impetus for going or the rationale for going deep inside is because it's my turn. It's my turn to let my brothers and sisters in arms rest. And so it was just kind of a, an, an interesting thing for me. Um, the American public thinks it's selfless and, and gives us a lot of credit. Um, and perhaps it is selfless, but it's selfless in a way that's probably not as common as people would perhaps recognize. Um, but yeah, just, just life-changing uh, moments. Um, mm. And um, yeah, I think coming back, um, there were some, a little bit of difficulty, I think, just kind of that readjustment period after coming back from Baghdad. And I felt like, okay, you know, I, I, I'm done. I appreciated the opportunity to serve and I believe that it's time to get out. And um, my mom actually had a little bit of an intervention because she said, hey, I don't, I, I think you're making a poor decision. Um, you know, she said, you've, you've put time and effort into this and I really feel like perhaps you should continue. And I just thought, you know, I just, it's not what I want to do. I, so um, shortly after another assignment, um, I was going to be done altogether. But fortunately, my mom, you know, staved a little bit of an intervention and, you know, had, had my uncle who's a pastor um, and, you know, my, my parents as well. Like we all just kind of sat down and they talked and said, hey, don't, don't waste the opportunity that you have as far as being a military officer. You should, you know, continue to press forward. And so I'm grateful that I was able to, um, but uh, did leave active duty in 2012 to go to Bible college for grad school um, so that I could, you know, consider, continue to pursue full-time ministry. Uh, and I joined the Guard in 2012 and have been in the Guard ever since. And it's been amazing. It's been incredibly amazing. So that's what you're, oh, man. Okay. So many things. But. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. So, okay, wait, I have sure. so many things. So, so that's where you are today. You're in the guard today, right? I am. I am. Currently doing that. Yes. And you are, you are, you're the first African-American Filipino to serve as a commander in the history of your wing, correct? Yes. So first of either. Yes. Amazing. Amazing. So obviously That's you're still exciting. doing, yeah, you're still doing big things and having a huge impact <laughs> in that side of your life. Um, so, so just tell me a little bit more what you're doing outside of the guard then. Just tell me a little bit more about that. Sure. So in 2015, I went to Brazil on a mission trip and uh, I hadn't flown in a long time. And in fact, you know, failing at something, I had my private pilot's license, but failing at something was something that was very humbling. 
And so I just really didn't touch aviation because I thought, I'm just not good at it. And Air Force aviation is an elite level, but aviation in and of itself, um, you can do really well with it, but it's, you know, the nature of it, fast paced, that kind of thing. I just didn't understand airmanship at the time, nor did I understand how I learned. Uh, and so I just didn't really touch it. So I'm in 2015, I'm in Brazil. And while I'm there, I encounter some friends who basically said, we want to reach the Amazon. And we have, there's one plane that we could potentially contract with, and there's one pilot as well. But to go up and down the length or, you know, the length of the Amazon River, sure, it takes days and boats and that kind of thing. But basically, if you had a heart for missions and that skill set, like, would you come over and help us? And so I'd never once considered using aviation for anything. If anything, it was merely a conversation starter, you know, because there are fewer than 150 African-American female professional pilots in the United States. And so... I, I'm a unicorn in that sense. So I enrolled in an aeronautics degree program at Liberty University and started like back on this aviation journey. And when I had the time frame to kind of space out the understanding, like I didn't have to fly every day, two times a day sometimes, I could space out the understanding and ask the questions that I knew I needed to ask because I needed the answers for. And Short version, I like to work from big picture um, to small picture, outward to in. And if you tell me all the theory about behind why we're doing something, then I can give you the what. Um, but previously I had learned in pilot training prior that we were operating from the here's the what, this is how you handle it, and then we're gonna expand it, and this is ultimately how you do you know, a low level drop at night uh, with you know, troops and cargo. Um, but I would rather kind of figure that out from the beginning because that's how my brain works. And so this time around, airmanship made sense. And, and so I was able to continue to progress um, at my pace and earn my instrument rating and commercial pilot rating and currently working on my certified flight instructor rating. Um, but I realized in short that my desire and what I was put on earth to do is develop and serve missionaries through aviation. And so that is amazing that is amazing oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay sorry i cut you off sure, you, de sure. you developed no. a nonprofit. keep it's going no <laughs> yeah and so that's it so we have the missionero pipeline and uh spanish the word for missionary is misionero and the word the our name is mission like our goal or our life's goal a-e-r-o mission arrow our goal is aerospace but then i have a burden for latin america so misionero is kind of that play on words there. And then the pipeline is kind of how we stream, not streamline it, but structured it. We start in fifth grade and then we, we kind of go through this, this, this singular focused path towards missionary aviation that we can kind of bring you along through. So uh, a lot of kind of um, meeting and foundation and you know brand building that kind of went into the thought process. And I'm grateful for solid advisors that help with the program to kind of start from youth, with youth from as early as fifth grade all the way up through college level to be able to help them prepare. You are not a late bloomer. No, no, no. All these pieces, <laughs> all these pieces came together. You're not a late bloomer. You were just on your oh. path, girl. I love it. That's amazing. Oh. All right. So now I, now I have to ask, uh, if you had sure. to sum up your time at the academy in one word, what would it be? Well, if you say late bloomer can't be 
can't work. Then... <laughs> it can work if that's how you want to define okay. it. But yeah. 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 Let's do, let's do late hyphen bloomers. <laughs> Got it. I love it. All right. That yeah. works. All right. So Thank looking you. back now that you've explained how this all unfolded, how do you feel about that decision to attend a federal service academy? Oh, I, I would 100% do it all over again. And knowing what I know now, I would still do it. Um, but I would still have done it the same way. Um, I know I could go back and say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not be on academic probation. I'm going to not be on conduct after probation. And I'm going to start and try to do my best in absolutely everything I do. Um, but that wouldn't make me me and I wouldn't have learned those lessons. And so exactly, I would have gone back to be the same 18 year old and started it all over again, highs and lows included, 100%. I love it. Yeah. Cause it's got you to where you are today for sure. I love it. For um, sure. And, and what's next for you? Uh, well, I guess you're the first person and whoever else hears this, but, um, short version, um, for the last four months or so, I've just felt a lot of inklings. And so the other day I was talking to my pops and he just said, I don't know where I think you should run for politics, like run for office. Wow. I think you have the, the acumen and the the background, and I think you know you'd it'd be a, you'd be a benefit, and uh, so that is potentially the next step. Um, I want to serve people. Like I don't have a, a burden, a pressing desire to to be an officer, to be somebody. I want to serve. So perhaps it's politics, but I'm learning, growing, talking, asking questions to see if that's where God would have me. Wow. I am definitely excited to see what you decide to do with that. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you am. so much. Before we go, do you have any parting words for listeners, perhaps a key message to your fellow Service Academy sisters? We are unique and I love you. Each and every one of us has the opportunity to impact somebody else in an amazing way because of what we've learned and been through. And uh, I'm, I'm privileged to be in the same sentence uh, as each and every one of you. It's hard. And we did it. And I'm grateful. Awesome. And finally, what is one random fun fact about you? Random fun fact. Um, I love traveling and I have visited all seven continents. Nice. That's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Um, all right, Jennifer Ruth, it's been a blast. Um, I'm so excited for Thank you. you. Uh, it sounds like you're doing great work. You have more to come. But for now, where can people reach you? Uh, I'm available on LinkedIn, Jennifer Ruth Green. Uh, last name is just Green, first name is Jennifer Ruth. And, um, or missionero.org, M-I-S-S-I-O-N-A-E-R-O.org. You can find us. I look forward to hearing from anybody. I love mentoring, helping, training, teaching. And if I can be a help to you in any way, please reach out. Perfect. And I will put those links in the show notes for anyone who wants to find Thank you. you. So. Thank you. All right, Jennifer Ruth, thank you so, so much for sharing your story with the Service Academy sorority. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Victoria. I appreciate being in the same virtual room with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to visit the Service Academy sorority website to see photos, comprehensive show notes, and contact information for each guest. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. In addition, if you enjoy what you heard here today, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. And if you'd like to be featured on an upcoming episode, 
please feel free to submit your contact information on our website at www.serviceacademysorority.com.